0: Ibiza, an island paradise off the coast of eastern Spain. azure waters, epic sea views and pine-covered hills. This secluded natural beauty has attracted people to Ibiza for centuries before the time of the superclubs and super-rich.
1: Ibiza, you choose whatever you want, you know? You can go to the beach, you can go to party, you can party daytime, you can party nighttime...
2: It seems to have its own like little microclimate
0: culture. People saw that life in Ibiza could be free from the shackles of normative society. And so began a spiritual conversation between the island and bohemian outsiders from all over the world, from beatniks to the biggest rock stars.
3: After Acid House, people got the fuck out of here and, and went on a another grand tour. I think it was authentic, spiritual awakening.
4: We sort of jumped on a plane, just thinking we were going to have a bit of a holiday. 28 years later, still
2: here.
0: The music scene on Ibiza was changing, influenced by generations of foreigners who were making the island their home.
4: It was ginormous. It was a 10,000 capacity venue. We actually got in the Guinness Book of Records as being the biggest weekly party in the world.
2: Always a summer anthem, isn't there, that you can just kind of shut your eyes and you're in Ibiza year after year.
0: But today, are some of the island's unique charms being lost?
1: Now, in these days, they are with the iPhone. First, it's more important the picture. They don't even know who's playing.
4: It's all about people spending five to ten to fifteen thousand pounds on a VIP table.
0: This is Ibiza, a true island love story. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by I.D. magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, I.D.'s Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. This week, once ahead in this hidden secret, Ibiza found itself in the spotlight in the late 80s when its unique Balearic sounds intersected with British club and drug culture in a moment of pure euphoria.
4: My name's Dawn Hindle. Um, I came to Ibiza in 1994 Um, I never left, basically. I'm the creative director of the Ibiza Rocks Group, of Pikes, and before that we used to do a club night called Manumission.
0: Dawn, who moved to Ibiza in the 1990s, has found sanctuary here, immersing herself in island life, continuing centuries-old traditions.
4: Well, I think, you know, once you start to look into the history of Ibiza, I mean, it goes back throughout history of being almost a sort of pirate island, an island of freedom. And because the Ibhenkos are so accepting of anybody, you know, it was a place where a lot of the Jewish community escaped to, um, to escape Persecution during Franco's time, a lot of poets, artists would come over. There was a whole influence of people coming over from America to escape conscription into into the war. You know, so it's always had this idea of being this place where, I suppose, free thinking people with quite a creative spirit would come, and they'd find other like minded people. And I think that still continues. I think you still very much see that.
0: Francisco Ferrer is creative director of Ibiza's most famous club, Pasha, and grew up on the island during the heyday of its hippie days in the late 1960s and early 70s.
1: You know, it's like when you are a child and it's very, very... Very nice, you are with your family. I remember I was going to all the all the beaches that now it's Calabatella, Calaconte, it was empty, it was virgin, nothing there. And now you cannot even put a chair on the, <laughs> on the beach because it's fully, 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 fully wood. But uh, it was different, it was another history. It was, you know, but Ibiza from the beginning was always very open to the people, you know.
0: The sun, sea and welcoming attitude from the locals proved irresistible to many and in England during the 1970s, as the economy struggled and post-war beatnik ideals proliferated, some sought a new way of life in a haven on the Balearic Sea.
2: I'm Lula Kennedy. I'm the director and founder of Fashion East, which is a non-profit project to support emerging designers. My connection with Ibiza starts from when I was years old and my parents moved out there so my parents were hippies and they had friends already on the island who i believe were from the uk so the idea was to sort of all move out there bring up the kids together quite communal style and um they made beaded jewelry and we sold it in the market square in Ibiza town and that was like the early 70s and I mean, it was completely unspoiled, not that touristy kind of you had to know about it.
1: Ibiza from the beginning was always very open to the people, you know, like always very uh, peaceful, allowing the people to come, to do themselves and to be themselves.
0: According to Francisco, this connection between travellers and the locals was an organic one. Soon, an alternative lifestyle was emerging, complementing the native way of life.
1: I think it comes from from even the the hippies bring this to Ibiza, but as well the people who was living here, the payeses, you know, the old people you saw from the beginning pictures that it was the hippies. And it was this mix that they were living together and they were not disturbing one to each other, you know. As well, you know, before when the hippies comes to Ibiza, the beach was not so important because for the people of Ibiza, it was more important than internal, you know, for to make money. It was like this. It was really natural. It was not the iPhones, whatever, so the people was free. They were going out, they were meeting people, they were speaking with the people, they were dancing, they didn't mind how they were dressed, with who they were speaking, who was playing, because it was freeness, you know?
0: This bohemian lifestyle began to attract a jet-set crowd, and at the centre of it all was Pike's Hotel, a ruined farmhouse turned hotspot for sex, drugs and rock and roll. Dawn Hindle bought the hotel from the legendary Ibiza figure Tony Pike in 2008.
4: He was a one-off that sort of represented an era. He was a bit of a sort of Hugh Hefner of the Ibiza. I think he had more lovers and wives and children than anybody else I know out there. And he, very much, you know, he he was a host great friends with um, a lot of the stars of the time so you know people like Spandau Ballet like Grace Jones obviously Wham! Um, filmed the Club Tropicana video there you know it was a unique intimate experience Pikes very much tried to embrace the ethos of the island and keep the authenticity and basically just welcome anybody
0: In the days leading up to the mid-1980s, celebs like Grace Jones, Jean-Paul Gaultier and Freddie Mercury were frequent faces both at pikes and a new type of club that was beginning to emerge on the island. These new night spots were located in old converted farmhouses and added an experimental, unrestricted edge to the island's nightlife. The parties often went long into the next day and fostered a new sound, Another legendary Ibiza location is Pasha, now celebrating its 50th birthday. It was there, alongside other early Ibiza clubs like Q and Amnesia, that the island's spirit was developed musically through that famous balearic sound. DJs like the legendary Alfredo helped set the tone. Francisco Ferrer, who has worked at PASHA since 1985, recalls how the atmosphere of the island extended to the music choices of DJs like Alfredo and Pippi.
1: In Pacha, I can speak to you in Pacha, it was like the, we, we were with, with DJ Alfredo, with DJ Pippi. They were playing, kids like, but before it was cool. It was not so much technology. So all the records, all the record labels were giving the, the records to the DJs. So they were practicing and trying the new records in Ibiza. And then at the end of the summer, it was like the record that is the record of the sounder, And then you begin to listen the record all around the world. In Ibiza, they were trying, they were proving, they were discovering that some sound, you know, this freeness.
0: Dawn Hindle picks up the story.
4: There was all these DJs that basically just played whatever they wanted to do. And that was the whole definition of Balearic sound. You know, it was literally a freedom of expression to play whatever. And I suppose people, those people coming over from London hadn't heard that before. They then took it back to clubs like Schoom and things that were like popping up in the UK.
0: This sense of freedom might be familiar to those who were there during the rave scene that blew up in the UK during the late 1980s, but on Ibiza, hedonistic parties were taking place in somewhat more idyllic locations. Lulu Kennedy,
2: but it was still pretty basic. Like it wasn't about super clubs, and it was about secret parties, different parts of the island. So in that way, it still felt very rave to me. Like. You had to get a phone number, jump in a car, go to someone's house that you've never met, and they'd take you down to a beach and there'd be a party going on.
0: This is where our narrative collides with another episode in this series. Football mania. Much like the football fans travelling around Europe to follow their team's matches, there was also a subset of Brits travelling the continent to party, bringing back new sounds and styles to the UK. It is legend, albeit often contested, that four clubbers brought the Balearic Sound back to London and birthed Acid House. Whether or not this is strictly true, the freedom England's youth found in Ibiza was hugely influential to the UK rave scene. Blackburn-based artist Jamie Holman has tracked the impact of rave culture on his hometown through the online archive Acid House flashback. And places like Blackburn, the mills that had been abandoned after the textile industry collapsed in the 80s were ripe for the taking by the town's youth. Soon, thousands were partying in Blackburn.
3: It was a really incredibly creative time, like probably more creative in terms of the numbers and the focus even than punk had been particularly in this area um it it, the the narrative of participation starts with uh 10 20 people in a house and you can track that moving to an empty shop uh and and within months it's it is a it's an empty mill i can tell you that in like 1988 abita was all black there because i've been told and i've seen the evidence of it and there was a movement around these things and people were aware of what was going on in different
0: Down the road in Manchester, things were also popping off at the North's most famous club, the Hacienda.
5: Flesh at the Hacienda was completely decadent. It was hedonistic, it was colourful, it was bright, it was brash.
0: DJ Paulette cut her teeth DJing in Manchester in the early 90s and says that the scene's dedication to freedom of expression allowed a nascent queer scene to flourish and grow to host the kind of spectacles that were taking place on Ibiza at the time.
5: It was the first time, really, in Manchester that there'd been a joining of the tribe, so to speak. And that was amazing. It was a Wednesday night monthly, so it's midweek partying. And it was full on. It it was like a mini festival. Everything funk, soul, hip-hop, house, um, real party vibes, really playing for the dancers.
0: In the UK... The freedoms afforded by this kind of party were always coming up against obstacles, such as the rampant homophobia of conservative culture.
5: I mean, you're talking about 1990, 91, 92, we've come off the back of chapter 28, which is basically made talking about anything to do with um, homosexuality or same-sex anything illegal. So, um, putting a party like that in the Hacienda, the biggest club in Manchester, which hadn't had a gay party itself in the nine years since it had been open, was like a real fuck you to the authorities.
0: As Paulette's description shows, it wasn't easy going in the UK the DIY culture of Acid House began to fall apart as the scene got bigger, attracting more people, the more drugs, and as a result, more police.
3: So ecstasy changed the dynamics of the parties. It was part of the downfall of the parties in the sense that you can't have 10,000 kids spending 20 quid on drugs in a space and not expect that space to change. You know, things get dark really, really quickly, so it's the peak of criminality around Acid House but when you get people travelling from all over the country and we're into tens of thousands who all want to buy the drug then that is a tinderbox waiting and that's what happened here and it was and it finished very abruptly.
4: But it was also Manchester had this undercurrent it had um, a lot of gang-related violence, you know. And mm. I remember, you know, you'd always hear if someone was getting shot, there was a lot of drug gangs. And basically, Manumission was in a small club called Equinox. And on the 12th week, um, someone tried to get in. The bouncers refused to let him in. He came back probably about half an hour later with a, with a can of petrol and tried to burn the club down. So... That was our sort of early initiation into sort of clubbing in Manchester. And we just thought, you know what, I suppose it sort of scared us in a way enough to want to search for a new home for Manumission.
0: And so, like many others searching for the love and freedom of the Acid House heyday, Dawn ended up washing up on the shores of Ibiza. And the intensity that had built up in the UK didn't just dissipate, It spilled over to the continent, naturally falling on Ibiza.
3: After Acid House, people got the fuck out of here and and went on another grand tour. People talk about, kind of clumsy to talk about it now because it feels naive, I think it was authentic, spiritual awakenings.
4: friends of ours who were body painters came to Ibiza and basically said look everything that you're trying to achieve in Manchester and it's fighting against you is just there in Ibiza it's the sort of land of freedom of expression and that's where you need to be so we sort of jumped on a plane and went to um, Ibiza just thinking we were going to have a bit of a holiday and um, 28 years later still here.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after the break. In the 90s, as Ibiza carried on the party, its club scene exploded, hosting the biggest names in DJing from all over the world. DJ Paulette.
5: This is a time when everything was bubbling under. It was just about to explode, you know, the, like DJs were suddenly turning into something important. I mean, there was obviously, I mean, we were always at space, on the terrace, inside, you know, played at Space Terrace as well. You know, that was an absolute must. Manny Mission, absolute must. And then Amnesia, DJ there, and, you know, obviously Privilege with the roof that opened, and that was incredible. Um, And then Pasha, you know, those places are still, you know, that mythical, magical places to go and party.
0: Dawn Hindle's Night Manumission originally took place in Kew and launched with a bang
5: it was ginormous. It was
4: a 10,000 capacity venue. And we actually got in the Guinness Book of Records as being the biggest weekly party in the world. And it it was, it was just the scale was something, especially if you came from the UK, you know, you just never experienced before. It was like an aircraft hangar. But it was a paradise. You know, I had a giant swimming pool. We had the DJ, de- we put the DJ in the middle of the swimming pool. We used to have acrobats performing overhead. We had this tiny little bar called the Coca Loca Bar, which was the sort of gay heart of the club. And, you know, we had people like Norman Cook handing out toilet roll in the toilets to punters. So it was just a very surreal, I mean, I think my favourite quote of that time was The Guardian. Basically said, um, Manumission was surreal clubbing for the previously disenchanted. And I think that sort of sums it up.
0: Clearly, Ibiza was no longer just an easygoing hippie retreat. It had become a true party destination. Yet despite the White Island becoming ever more popular, it was still a place where you could find total escapism from everyday life.
5: Certainly, when I started going out there, that stretch of beach where the Café del Mar was was like hideous to walk on like it was rocky it was sandy it was gritty it was a little bit grubby but it was fantastic and it was like everyone could go there it wasn't marked off it wasn't expensive it wasn't like You sit there at Café Del Mar and then you walk down a bit and you sit there at Café Mambos. It wasn't as separate as it is now. There was really a sense of it being open and unified in the early 90s.
0: By the late 90s, Ibiza had become a global money-making machine. Planning and policing increasingly dominated a booming nightlife industry, originally grown on the back of its dedication to total freedom.
1: Now, in these days, they are with the iPhone. First, it's more important the picture. They don't even know who's playing, but it's for the picture and need to do this and that. No, before it was natural. It doesn't matter how you go, with who you go, how you are dressed, and it was. Happy, you know, it was real, you know. Now as well, but it's it's other, it's another world. It's evolution, and it's like this.
0: And as more regulation comes in, it gets more expensive to run a club. These regulations have changed the face of clubbing in Ibiza. Dawn Hindle
4: late 90s as you went into the 2000s I thought I think it sort of changed a little and I think also probably the political climate influences that because you could have you know the terrace of space where it was an outdoor club you know there was a lot of um, free um, for moon parties things like that and then as the politics changed the government the police would enforce legislation against it. And so I think all that started to change because then it all became about paying into clubs. And and I think these days now what you see it's all about VIP people spending anything from five to ten to fifteen thousand pounds on a VIP table. And that changes the sort of the makeup, I think.
5: Yeah. And this is where, you know, that that is part of the worry, really, where the dance floor shrinks.
0: DJ Paulette.
5: The people that have taken precedence are the ones that have come in on the yachts with loads of money that can afford a table in the VIP because the people on the dance floor cannot afford to be up there. And the people on the dance floor are the ones that make the party because the people in the VIP ain't dancing. I hate to say it, but, you know, music has, it's become more of a business, which is the way things go. But I think, That would have to be tempered for it to return to its roots of like the post-60s being there and the stars hanging out there because they could be there because they wouldn't be seen. Now the stars go there to be seen.
0: So where do we go from here? For a destination known for its dedication to alternative living, Ibiza's ethos means that things are bound to change.
2: Oh, let me get my crystal ball one sec. What's it saying? <laughs> um, I find that when I go there, I like going to the super clubs for sort of entertainment purposes. But yeah, of course, I would love something a bit more, you know, homegrown. I think there's definitely an appetite for it. But you know the way like there's that kind of like, Everyone's looking for the more elevated experience such that, you know, so that's why there's beach clubs in the cutest little coves and there's like pikes and, you know, there's, pro- there's probably space for about another 10 pikes, you know, sort of more set in the countryside, more like agro kind of vibes. Yeah, the locals, the landscape, the tolerance, yeah, the natural beauty. <laughs> it's just no stress. I've just never had a bad time.
0: But whatever the future... And even if the sun sets on the White Island's bohemian spirit, it will always rise again. Whether it's for the super clubs, the super rich or the island's natural beauty, Ibiza will continue to attract thousands each summer season in search of their own slice of freedom.
4: I think the the thing with the beef of the perfect night could either be the perfect day ending in watching the sunset with a glass of rose or something on a on a cliff edge with a great sort of ambient sound, or the perfect night could be a sort of cheeky chipito on the way out to an unforgettable like musical experience in in a club or at a house party I think the thing about Beetha is it is there's always a party to go to there's always someone to party with and there's always an excuse for a night out so it's sort of like a almost like a sort of 24 hours seven day a week sort of party island still Ibiza loves to party
3: Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy and Mohoro Seawood. Identity is produced by Amelia Phillips, with assistance by Marta Abramaitite, and art by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Lieber, and Identity is a Podmasters production for Vice Media.